When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Buck Sexton Show. I have my friend, David Marcus joining us now. David Marcus is a columnist for a whole bunch of places. You probably get the news, Daily Mail, New York Post, Spectator. Uh, He's a writer, and he has a lot of thoughts on a lot of things. He's with us now. David, great to have you back. Thanks for having me, man. So how how are we doing with this whole saving the country thing these days on the right? How is how's the whole conservative project chugging along at this point? You know, I I have a lot of optimism uh, for it, honestly, maybe more than a lot of people uh, do on the right. Part of what I do, a big part of what I do is try to look at, try to to analyze and look at what's happening on the right. I don't really take a lot of sides. Um, I just want to know, like, where are we? And I do think that when you look at some of the things that, for example, Governors DeSantis and Youngkin are doing with education, um, in Florida and Virginia, uh, when you look at, I, I think Kevin McCarthy sort of proving some of his critics, if not wrong, at least reassuring them um, that he was going to be a different kind of leader for Republicans. I, I do think there's a lot to be optimistic about. Well, that's good news. That's <laughs> I, I don't get a sorry lot of to be the be, sorry to be the bearer of good news. No, yeah. I was going to say. I, mean, I, I feel like that's that's encouraging. Obviously, everyone's gearing up for some kind of uh, a Hulk versus the Thing throwdown between uh, Trump and DeSantis. And I keep telling everybody, you know, we 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 have all these expectations that don't end up coming true in politics. Maybe it we it'd be best to uh, one be humble about what we can and cannot predict, and two just watch events as they, as they play out instead of assuming that everything is, is set long before it actually happens. Um, and you know, I think the midterm elections were an exercise in that at at some level, but I I also feel like uh, on the right, you know, we look at polls, for example, we look at, uh, so many people are dissatisfied with Joe Biden, with the economy right now. And, you know, the state of the union uh, that Biden has, has done this week. Um, but yet they still vote for him, right? I mean, this is, this is where I think, and, and I know people say, oh, 80 million people didn't vote for Biden. Just, there are a lot of really, really devoted Democrats out there who are lunatics who will vote for Joe Biden folks. Okay. There's, there are a lot of them. I don't, I don't know how many exactly, but there are a lot of them. Yeah. Listen, you know, it, it was interesting a, a couple days after the midterms when, it seemed like once again, the entire National Review right, and I love National Review, I've written for them, I think, I think they do a really good job, but, but this whole crowd was like, okay, this is the end of Trump, right? I thought they were gonna do another one of these like never Trump, okay, now we all have to get behind DeSantis and this is what, and I said, slow your roll, guys. Like, like this, is, this is not how this works. And I spoke to, uh, a couple of guys at a, a bar, pub, restaurant in Brooklyn, this place called the Salty Dog, which if, if you're ever in, in Bay Ridge, it's great. Um, and they were both Trump voters which, who do exist in Brooklyn. And I asked them very specifically, I said, what do you want to see? Do, do you want to see the establishment and the donors and the elites sort of put their thumb on the scale for DeSantis because we don't think Trump is electable? Or do you want to just have the fair fight. And these guys were open to DeSantis, but they said they want the fair fight, right? That's the key. Everyone's worried like, oh, Trump's voters are, 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 you know, he's gonna run third party and they're gonna go away. I think that's far less likely if the voters understand that we just get to make a choice as opposed to, as the New York Times reported this week, 
the Koch brothers saying we're going to consolidate behind an alternative. You, well, you can't I, I do also that. think it's I think it's strange, you know, because there definitely is a I think it's probably a small but loud minority within the right. But there are definitely people who take this position of you're supposed to know now who you want to be the presidential nominee and to this and they think it's it's being a you know a wimp or a fence sitter or something like this and i sit here and say well i knew in 2016 that the nominee was supposed to be ted cruz or marco rubio or ben carson or you know right i mean what you know ain't so over the course of a primary I realized over the course of that primary, I was like, oh, my gosh, it is going to be Trump. He's got something special. He's saying something special. There's something different here. And I don't understand. Why, well, maybe understanding isn't really the right question or right way to approach it. But I, I think that there are a lot of people that uh, want want us all to forget that there's a nomination process for a reason, that the fight, that the battle, that the back and forth, the conversation the debate in front of the American people between people that want the most powerful job in the world is part of the process and a good thing. And it is okay to say, I want to see this play out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think that, you know, when you get off of Twitter and, and when you get, you know, as I have notwithstanding my background recently, you know, gotten out of New York city, right. When, When you get out of like the places where the pundits stomp the terror, one of the things that you realize is that electability is a big deal on Twitter. It's not a big deal in the minds of American voters, even in primaries, right? Voters don't say, well, I'm going to make, you know, I'm, I'm playing Monopoly here and I'm going to make the smartest choice and try to, you know, game the system. No, they like somebody. They say, oh, th- th- this guy says stuff that I like. I want this guy. And even if they were trying to game the system and say, well, what's the electability game? They're likely to land on other people are going to like what I like. Right. So we, we can all tweet about like, you know, the polls and this and that. But at the end of the day, voters really say, does this guy or woman, you know, mean something to me? Was it is it Yogi Berra who is credited with it and over to the fat lady sings? Is that right? I, I don't know who. Or is that just a phrase that everybody uses? I know he's deja vu all over again, which, of course, is a pretty funny little yes, line. Yes, he, he was that, yeah. Yeah, he was definitely that. Uh, but I don't know if it's, it, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. Um, th- this is also something that I think in politics is, is pretty funny, that we keep having to relearn this. And I just mean this even in general. It goes beyond party. We have to relearn the same lessons because we talk about things like electability. And, you know, this is going to sound so... Uh, so ridiculous, but I do think it's an important reminder. You know who's electable? The person who wins, right? <laughs> he never yeah. always goes, oh, well, this guy or that girl is or is not. Donald Trump was not electable until he beat the whole system. Um, you know, Ron DeSantis was not electable as even the governor of Florida. Uh, barely was electable as the governor of Florida. And now he just won the biggest landslide uh, reelection in the history of the state, right? So I, I just think it's interesting because the whole concept of electability has in it that the people that are using that word know what's actually going to happen in the future. And one thing that we all know for sure is, you know, economists got, got a lot of heat for a while for being wrong about everything. Political prognosticators, they've had a pretty rough, uh, pretty rough decade, I will say. No, it's true. And, and, and look, the media is somewhat complicit in this. Um, I remember back in about August of 2022, I started feeling like Lee Zeldin maybe had a chance. And I mean, he was down 20 in the polls. I mean, you know, and I started going to my editors, right? Cause I'm not staffed up. I'm, I'm independent. I, I, I write for all these different places. I was going to everybody saying, Hey, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to write something about this Zeldin campaign. Can I spend a couple of days on the Zeldin campaign, do a sort of Selena Zito style you know, type thing, who, by the way, I think is the best columnist in the country, but you know, can I do that? And everybody, and this is not to, to throw anybody under the bus, but everybody said, Dave, that's a, it's a 20 point race. Like this is not a story, you know, lo and behold, by early October, Zeldin starts catching up a little bit, right? The message starts landing. 
he damn near won that race. I did something that I never do. I wrote a piece for the Daily Wire saying he will win. And I was wrong. Uh, I was almost right. But the reason I wrote it that way was was to really just throw water in the face of people and say, like, listen, these races aren't unwinnable. We treat them that way. And we have a responsibility as journalists to cover them. Is Chuck Schumer going to win by 20 points? Maybe. You still got to cover the Senate race, right? And by the way, I think Joe Pinion actually did much better against Chuck Schumer. Joe's, yes. uh, uh, Joe's a friend of mine. Much better against Chuck Schumer than anybody anticipated. And and still people yeah. don't really give him credit for it. I mean, he, he actually, you know, closed the gap pretty considerably. Now, obviously, right. it wasn't and, and, a close yeah, and, race, and Buck, but... And, and Buck, what happens if the New York Times and the New York Post and the Washington Post and everybody else were paying attention to that race, right? It, it changes the dynamic when when journalists and when the media say, oh, well, this is a foregone conclusion. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, well, I think one part of politics that uh, we can never get around is it is based on perception. And there is a multi-billion dollar endless perception manipulation machinery that is at work in this country, the likes of which has never existed in all of human history before it too. Uh, you know, there, I think back to, you know, I like to read historical, historical biographies and, you know, presidents, U S presidents, obviously I'll go back and I'll read and you'll, you'll be reminded that, you know, presidents would go on you know, steam train tour. <laughs> they would shake hands. There would be a couple of local papers and write some stuff about them. But I mean, now I can go back and I can find you video of Joe Biden looking like a jackass from 1985. Right. I mean, in my phone instantaneously, I mean, just the the way and that's what I that's me looking for. They can also make it appear on my phone. They can also decide what shows up in search results. Uh, so the perception uh, management and manipulation operation that is underway in this country blows out of the water anything that we've ever seen before in human history, uh, with the exception of maybe totalitarian states. But, you know, ours is actually much more effective right? <laughs> because they convince people sense, of things yeah. that. Yeah, you know, in totalitarian state, it's we're lying to you, accept the lie or we'll shoot you, right? I mean, that's that's one way to do propaganda. I mean, everyone kind of knows they're lying, but they don't want to get shot. In this country, they convince people of things that are quite plainly not so. Um, and I, I think it's much more of an epidemic on the left. I do think occasionally it happens uh, for people on the right as well, which is a concern. I, I want to talk about the cultural component of this and actually get a little bit into David Marcus's Passed a bit because you were a, a thespian, sir. You were a man who is you're a man of the arts, a creative, even. I am that, and yeah, I mean, I, or I was, you know, yeah. yeah. Well, you still are in a way. There's a company I want to tell everybody about for a second here, though, and you need them if you want a good night's rest. My pillow, I just got a, an order set up for my pillow products for my family members because they love them, they love the slippers, the pillows, the towel sets. But the sheets, honestly, they might be the biggest game changer of all for me. The Giza Dream sheets are amazing. Coming in as low as $29.98, but you got to use promo code BUCK to get that price. So it's time to update your sheets. Get better sheets. Get new sheets. The Giza Dream sheets, made with the world's best cotton, Giza. They're ultra soft and breathable, but extremely durable with a great-looking appearance that endures over time. MyPillow products come with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. So you get eight weeks of every night sleeping on these sheets to make sure your purchase is a great one, and it will be. Go to MyPillow.com, click on Radio Listener Specials, check out this flash sale on the Giza Dream sheets. Remember to use my name as a promo code BUCK, or just call this number, 800-792-3269. That's 800-792-3269. All right. So, uh, you know, you, you, you can talk about how we've got some good columnists on the right, and I think that the... I think that in, in the realm of uh, political philosophy, and look, I'm just going to say it. I think our pundits are much smarter than their pundits. I really believe that. Um, just pound for pound, person for person, you know, there are always going to be, you know, standouts, exceptions, and all that on either side. But I think overall, because people on the right have had to fight for it, because speaking of, you know, going through the gauntlet and, and having to hone your skills, uh, if you're taking a, an opinion on the right and you're a person who works in any kind of communications, You've had to deal with opposition in a meaningful way. I think a lot of people on the left are just products of an echo chamber in the cultural realm. Right? You, you were uh, an actor. I want to ask you a few more questions about that. 
why don't we have more? I understand with the movies and Netflix and all that, it's big money. They shut us down. The wokeness terrifies the executives or the executives are true believers in wokeness. It can be either one. Why don't we have Tom Wolf these days? Bonfire of the Vanities. Why don't we have great novels that, that aren't explicitly politically conservative, but espouse truth without a view to political correctness and have uh, traditional values as a, a bedrock of, of the story of who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, that kind of thing? For me, the answer to that question has always been the fact that the arts became a nonprofit pursuit. Um, my first foray into conservative journalism was my very first article at The Federalist, um, which was in 2013. It was called Taking Back the Arts, and it was about why we need to get rid of the NEA. And my argument wasn't the traditional Jesse Helms, like, we don't want to fund Piss Christ, or this is a waste of money. My argument was, this is really bad for the art form. Um, this, is, this is really making people less likely to engage in the art form. Because what happens when an art form moves into the not-for-profit model is the incentives change completely, right? The incentive in, 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 in a capitalist model is let's get audience in. What does the audience want? Once you move to a non-profit model, whether it's in theater companies or universities or foundations that are giving grants or whatever, the incentive becomes what are these rich people want and how do i get their money and that'll be half of my operating money it absolutely destroys art because art needs to be about what the audience wants and and, and it's not anymore now now it really is about what a bunch of woke rich people want and, and it's awful buck it's 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 and have we, you, have we don't seen, have it there anymore. Are some really, there's some really interesting, and I've actually reached out to a couple of them, and I'm, I'm trying to arrange times to get them on to come on onto this show. There are some people who are doing uh, tw the Twitter accounts and you know Instagram and and you know TikTok Chinese spying on TikTok, whatever they still exist on TikTok. Uh, they they do accounts where they look at the modern aesthetic of things like let's say architecture, buildings. Um, everything, you know, sports arenas, uh, government buildings, things like this, and and how it seems like there is, that things are getting uglier and more depressing and that there may be a desire to do this on purpose at some level. That oh, no, there, no, are, there is. That, 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 that the left and the forces that want collectivist control believe that in suppressing beauty and the aspirational, they create a sameness of misery that makes people easier to control because they don't even care anymore. I mean, the, 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 to me, the, the, the most pressing example is the English language itself, right? Nary a week goes by that we don't see one of these lists that says, you know, stop saying, you know, um, kill two birds with one stone yeah. and instead say, you know, eat two scones with one, you know, whatever it is, the, this foolishness. Here's why that's so incredibly insidious and such a big problem. No English speaking country in the world has ever fallen to fascism and totalitarianism. And I would posit that the English language itself is a big reason for that. Why? Because the English language is so expansive. It has many more words than any other language. I think German is second. It's so flexible, right? There's no genders. You can turn a noun into a verb. I don't want to get too into the weeds, but you can do things with the English language that you just can't do with other languages. And I do think that it protects us from totalitarianism because there's always some other way to say, but wait a minute, what if we look at it this way? What the wokesters and the progressives are trying to do to the English language is say no. You have to use the English language in this very specific way. And that's the only way that the Anglosphere will ever fall to fascism. And, and, and we have to resist it. 
Well, to, to the point about uh, the scale of what I call the apparatus, uh, which is the machinery of ideological, social, political, and uh, and just total control uh, that is exerted by by an ideology that is honestly so broad and expansive that it can be hard to define. We call it the left. The Democrat Party is clearly an instrument of it and, and an embodiment of it in America. But what we saw during COVID is that it is also much broader and, and it is actually a global impulse. I mean, I think it goes, uh, it, it, it ties in with the same reason that communism is a global ideology rooted in uh, energizing the malcontents of society with the promise that if only you give complete power to people making the promise of absolute equality for all, everything will be better. Of course, as we know, everything gets worse. But this is this has been appealing to people, or at least some people in countries all over the world, because I think at, at a basic level of human nature, envy is an incredibly powerful element in politics and human psychology. That's one that's one part of it. Um, but as as all of this is uh, is unfolding right now. Um, oh, wait, pause for a second, because I need to tell you, I have a violent language list to your point from last week that I meant to mention that just was making the rounds. I don't know if you saw this. Yeah. So if anyone's wondering, if anyone's wondering what are some of the evolving from violent language requests, they don't want you to say what's the deadline any, anymore. They want you to say what's the due date. They don't want you to say we have to pick our battles. They want you to say we have to choose our opportunities they don't want you to say that was overkill. You can only say a bit excessive. And of course, you can't say we're going to pull the trigger. Say we're going to launch. And it goes on and on and on. And I think part of this is it's control. It's also demoralization, David. My, my job, right? Like, like basically my whole job is to use the English language in an interesting way. That was my job when I produced and, and, and wrote and acted and directed in theater, right? Was, was to use the language in, 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 to try, right? To use the language in, in some new way that, that would, you know, have an impact on people somehow. You know, th this idea that like we have to be so careful with our language or, oh my goodness, like somebody's going to be offended or, or we're going to, you know, induce somebody to do some bad thing. It is so deeply anathema to my soul because I love the English language. I've spent my entire life trying to figure out its, its, its mystery and majesty and, and, you know, reading Shakespeare over and over and over again because he really invented it. I mean, I mean he gave us as English speakers this incredible gift that that has led to, I believe, the greatest country on earth. Um, you know, and the UK is not bad either. Uh, and and it, it kills me to see that the same people. These are the same people who say, "Oh, they're, they're banning books in Florida." Well, first of all, they're not. And second of all, if you have a problem with banning books, then why are you banning phrases? Very good question. Very good point. I want to ask you uh, more about about this and also New York, David. You uh, you left New York. I left New York. Got two of us here. We should discuss this and, and where we think this is all heading. But I want to give everybody a little heads up. If you're a T-Mobile subscriber, they're investigating a data breach that exposed a sensitive personal information of 37 million customers. Right after the New Year, cyber hackers grabbed that data without notice. Might include customer name, emails, billing addresses, phone numbers. Cyber criminals exploit this stuff. They get it on the dark web. Then they use it to commit online identity theft. So how can you help yourself? What can you do to protect yourself? LifeLock. LifeLock's online identity theft protects you, including monitoring the web 24-7 for irregular activities and new account openings. If they see unusual activity in your name and you're a LifeLock customer like I am, you will get an alert. That comes via text, phone call, email, and it gets you the information you need. It's important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives. And if you do become a victim of identity theft, a dedicated U.S.-based LifeLock restoration specialist will work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But it's easy to help protect yourself with LifeLock. I've relied on them for years. They come through time and time again. Join now. Save up to 25% of your first year with promo code BUCK at LifeLock.com. That's LifeLock.com, promo code BUCK, or call one 
800-LIFELOCK. Use my name, Buck. You'll get that 25% discount on your membership. You just got to have LifeLock if you're online. David, before we get to the New York uh, conversation, um, I also think that that there are there are very few. If, if I ask somebody this, I, I've had this uh, thought experiment with friends. If you try to come up with a way that you can call someone a coward other than a coward, for example, you find yourself all of a sudden running into the word police very quickly. Uh, it's interesting how few words we have to describe disdain for weakness, disdain for uh, people who are duplicitous, um, people who are just bad people. You know, yes, I'm not just saying on the profane side, but but there are words you know that you cannot use because they're considered you know uh, sexist or misogynist or or whatever. I don't know, ableist or or something. You know, I mean, there are people who even tell you you shouldn't call anyone dumb or you shouldn't call anyone stupid. Okay, well, how do I explain who how do I explain how some of these Democrats are unable to, you know, members of Congress who are Democrats? Like if I want to say Eric Swalwell is not a an intellectually acceptable level fellow for a member of Congress. If you listen to the left, there are very few ways you can describe this that don't sound like you're reading from a dissertation without them claiming that, you know, you've offended somebody. They are destroying our ability to describe circumstances with language, and they're doing so by appealing to either our sense of decency or our fear of cancellation. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, that's the whole concept of equity, right? That that as opposed to equality, right? Equality is the equality of opportunities. Equity means we all have the same outcome, which means that for some reason, Eric Swalwell has to be considered just as, you know, bright as, I don't know, Newt Gingrich or, you know, who, whoever you want to, whatever bright person on the right you you want to say. Um, yeah, it, 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 it destroys discourse in many ways. And I, look, I, I don't, I don't run around calling people dumb. I don't have any, you know, desire to like, you know, use slurs or whatever, but you, you, you make a good point in that everything can't be completely relative or everything just goes completely to hell. And, and that's where we are right now. I think that that's what you're really saying is like, you know, this, it, this idea that like you can't criticize AOC or or whoever it is or or George Santos for that matter, right? Like I'm happy to make some George Santos jokes. Um, well, yeah, it's, we got, this, we it's get interesting you you mentioned you mentioned jokes because I also think it has been an intentional and this is this is an enormously um, I think important political and cultural implications the destruction of comedy is something that the left has really focused on. And I know they'd say, oh, but we have all these comedians. Yeah, they're all making the same jokes about, first of all, late night comedians, it all turned into bad Donald Trump jokes, which is why their shows yeah, were basically all, all destroyed, right? And that's why Red Eye at, at Fox became the most power, yes. you know, most uh, well-watched late night show without decades of platform building handed to it like uh, someone like a Colbert had. Um, I'll, but I'll, I'll I, I think this, it's an intentional program. Secret. Go ahead. I'll tell you the secret of this. There's a reason that stand-up comedy is the only place left in the performing arts where you even sort of like remotely have conservative ideas. I'm not calling Chappelle or Burr or Sandler like, you know, movement conservatives or whatever, but they've all bristled, right? Seinfeld. They've all bristled the left and, and, and gotten the left upset. Here's why. This is the last performing art form where you don't go to college for it, you don't go to studio for it, you don't, you know, show up at some not-for-profit theater company, you go to the comedy club, you sign your name on the list and say, I want to get up there for five minutes. And you know what happens, Buck? Either people laugh or they don't. And that's it. It's testable. If nobody laughs, you're not invited back. If everybody laughs, well, okay, yeah, come back, please. That meritocracy still exists in stand-up comedy. It exists almost nowhere else in the arts. And, 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 and that's why Gutfeld's able to do this. That's why, you know, you, you see this difference here. 
And it used to be that way in theater. It used to be that way in novels and poetry and everything. Why are people still on the fence about owning gold and silver? I just don't understand. Have we already forgotten about regional bank closures, inflation, global instability, and the potential for serious world conflicts? You can look to precious metals for various reasons. One, having tangible currency on hand as part of your bug-out plan. Two, diversifying your portfolio as a hedge against inflation. And three, historically, gold increases in value over time. You keep yourself informed about global events. You see the increase in conflicts around the globe. Countries are buying and hoarding massive amounts of gold. Why aren't you? It's time to pull the trigger with the Oxford Gold Group and buy gold and silver. Nobody can predict the future, but we can't put our head in the sand either. The people with Oxford Gold Group are real pros. They make owning gold and silver simple and easy to understand. Call Oxford Gold Group right now and you may qualify for up to $10,000 in free precious metals. Call 833-995-GOLD. That's 833-995-GOLD. One more time, 833-995-G-O-L-D. I know there aren't that many people who are listening who are big Broadway buffs. Probably some, but not very many. Not not that big on the right. I lived in New York adjoining, like, my, my I basically my building shared a wall with a Broadway theater. I think I have been to, in my life, half a dozen Broadway shows in my life. And some of those were, you know, school mandated. Um, but I do know that of the plays I'd seen in, let's say, the last 10 years, <laughs> the wokeness of Broadway makes the wokeness of Netflix seem like Fox News. I mean, it, it is. Oh, how it, did that happen? How did live theater, when I say Broadway also, off-Broadway, live, live theater became it is the the Wesleyan gender studies department doing live performance all over the country somehow. What happened? You come from this world. No, I mean, I, 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 I watched it happen. You know, I'll tell you, it's funny. Um, so my theater company in New York was called Blue Box Productions. That's if, if people are curious about my Twitter handle. That's why I'm Blue Box Dave. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting. We had a signature show. Um, my my co-producer was Libby Evans, who's now the the um, uh, editor-in-chief of Post Millennial. We both kind of, in a roundabout way, wound up making this journey. Um, but we invented this show called Sticky, and it was a night of 10-minute plays in a bar lounge space. And it didn't take place on a stage. It took place sort of around the bar and it would happen environmentally. It was, it was a really fun show. We ran it for about 15 years and I was the host of it. And I was starting in about 2008 or 2009, sort of openly Republican and conservative. And it was a joke, right? Like, like I would, I would sort of make jokes about political correctness or Obama or whatever it was, the audience would boo. We went back and forth, but it was friendly, right? It was, it, it was this sort of like, and, and, and afterwards I would talk to people and they'd say, oh, well, why do you, you know, I like Condoleezza Rice or, you know, whatever it was, right? <clears throat> you could do this in 2012. You can't anymore. Now it's like, I have to hate you if I disagree with you politically. And I watched this happen. I remember the first time anyone ever told me that they were triggered by something I said. It was this playwright, this, this young woman, you know, uh, and, and we were talking about the trans issue. And I said something and she said, well, I have to stop this conversation now because I'm feeling triggered. I remember thinking like, are, are you saying that in real life? We're goddamn New York artists. Like, we're supposed to be doing drugs and talking about whatever the hell we want to. Like, what is this? What is this like? I, oh, I'm triggered, so you have to shut up. No. It's as though the And New that's York, what happened, Buck. Yeah, the New York theater scene turned into all of the, quote, artists who are doing the bidding of the Stasi and the Communist Party in East Germany... <laughs> <laughs> from the lives of others, the great movie that sort of shows, you know, there's an artist who's actually trying to write, actually trying to to create. But there were plays, there were things that went on. Same same thing that, you know, in the, in the uh, 
and the rest of the Soviet Union, it was you did what they told you to do, though, right? You you, you oh, did it, what you were told to do, and and it feels like they don't recognize, you know, e- even when all the all these morons in Hollywood, and I do think social media is a big part of this because we have this window into the thoughts of people who would honestly be better off, and we would be better off if nobody knew their thoughts, right? I mean, Mark Ruffalo is a moron, right? Very rich, very famous. He's a moron. I don't want to hear what he has to say about anything or read what he has to say about anything, but it will appear in my Twitter feed because he has Twitter now. Social media has shown people, one, I think it's pushed more people to be more political in the arts, but also it has shown what a bunch. I mean, look, some people are in the arts just because they won the genetics lottery. You know, they're either super good looking or they have a super good voice or there's, you know, or they just have God given talent um, in, in one way or another. No, that That's important, Buck. Right. Because because here's where look, I, 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 I write for Daily Wire. I love Daily Wire. I love what they do on their entertainment wing. Right. I, I, I love what all sort of conservative. But, but when conservatives say, well, why don't we just start a movie studio? OK, here's your problem. The talented people, I went to, to Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, which I think accepted about 7% of its acting applicants, right? I'm not tooting my own horn here. I, I, I was just, I, for whatever yeah, it's like, it's like the said, Harvard Business School for actors. It's the place that people, yes, it's I, the I famous just, place for actors. Yes, I, I just happen to, to be good at this. And, and that really is all it is, right? Like I didn't, there, there was nothing special I did to, to, to be good at it. I just, I've never met anybody who became a good actor. They, they always started that way, right? The problem that the right has is that the only way to learn those skills, to, to hone those skills as an actor, as a director, as a playwright, as a screenwriter, is through institutions that are completely and utterly captured by the left. And this relates back again to the whole not-for-profit sort of system, right? Like we had conservative great actors in the 50s, 60s, 70s, right? John Wayne was a great actor. The problem is we don't, we don't have, we're not training people we're not in the places where these people are being trained. Like nobody drops out of the sky into being the showrunner of a Disney plus show. They're coming through theater companies. They're coming through universities. So daily wire and all these other places can do all they want. But if you're not developing the talent, you're not going to have the talent. Well, this is, this sounds a little bit like whenever I talk to uh, Americans who are really into sports about why a country of 340 million people with so many of the best athletes in the world can't put together a soccer team worth a damn. And, and by the, that, that the, the conversation is because if you grow up in Europe or Latin America um, or a handful of other places, but really those are the two major ones, you have access to uh, sub-professional leagues or sort of junior professional leagues where people start playing for the, you know, the club team, junior team at like age 12. I think in the case of Lionel Messi, he was basically like training to be a professional soccer player at age eight or age nine. And it's true of uh, of professional tennis players, too. I mean, they have to be going at that. And yeah. so if you had no access, if you have no access to those pipelines, you can't compete. And I do it's, think. But, but it's a, it's also cultural. I remember being a teenager and I'm, I, I'm, I, I, I'm wearing a Glasgow Celtics jersey at the moment, but I love Argentina. They're, they're my they're my. Oh, my God. When they I cried, Buck when they won the world cup and i was watching it with my 12 year old son and he was like you i don't know if you watched that match but it was like i did it was the most insane match ever and and when when that final penalty pk went in i literally cried and charlie's like you know are you okay dad i was like yeah no these are these are good these are you know tears of joy um (laughs) but but the other thing yeah i remember being in mexico when i was a teenager and i remember seeing like this little kid was carrying a balloon and he dropped the balloon. And what he did was he kicked it up back into his hands, right? Just a little flick with his foot back into his hands. I thought any American kid is reaching down and picking that balloon up. So yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there, there is this cultural thing of, of like, you know, you have this or you don't have this. And, and for artists, for anyone who, like I did, got seduced by theater or by writing or by, you know, 
playwriting, whatever it is, everywhere that you're getting shunted into is going to be constantly preaching wokeness to you. You just can't escape it. Yeah, the, the, the communists have infiltrated all of these pipelines and all these institutions of culture and of art, and they completely dominate them in a way that people that have never even been exposed to that world at all, I think, are, are shocked at, at the way, uh, you know, the, the things. I mean, it's, by the way, increasingly, it's true of law schools, too. I mean, it's, it's true of a lot of places that people wouldn't even expect it. It's true of medicine, as we saw during COVID. I want to talk to you about New York, actually, here, David, in just a second. So, yeah. Before we get to that, uh, just if I can wait, make wait. just one last point, point about this, when I was openly conservative in the New York theater scene, there was an interesting thing that would happen. Somebody would come up to me and say, hey, you know, my boyfriend's a conservative or, you know, hey, I'm a libertarian. I don't really feel comfortable talking about this. But and it was like a champagne bottle being uncorked. Once these people felt like they were safe having this conversation. You, you you couldn't stop it, right? That's the energy of the Trump rally, really. Is well, all the, these people who can't say at yeah. work, I think Trump is maybe, they get to a Trump rally and they're like, oh my God, I can actually say what I think. Well, this is like when I lived in D.C. during the Trump presidency and I would go to the Trump hotel. Um, I also went to the, you know, the White House for, for uh, interviews and things like that some, on occasion, but I would go to the Trump hotel and you'd walk in there and it was like you had entered an alternate universe where everybody was friendly and able to speak about their conservatism and be like, oh, isn't it great what you just saw? And, you know, oh, we could all laugh about CNN and you would leave. And it was as though, I mean, yeah, it was this big grandiose hotel and everybody knew that Trump was the owner and everything else. But you would leave and you'd walk around D.C. And you didn't talk about your, I mean, D.C. is 96 percent Democrat or 97 percent Democrat. You, you do not. If you were a right winger and you let on in D.C. in the wrong circles that that's who you are. It, it gets really uncomfortable and and uh, and really tense very quickly. Um, there's, so there's I, a dance. There was a dance that I would do with people in Brooklyn when I was living in Brooklyn. Right. Like, you, you know, you'd meet one of your neighbors or you'd be talking to somebody at the, you know, at the restaurant or the bar or whatever. And you kind of got this sense of like, wait a minute, maybe you're a conservative. And. I was talking to this about I was talking about this to to one of my editors once and they made a great point. They said it's almost like and this was a gay this was, this was like a gay man. He said it's almost like the dance that gay men would have to go through of like wait a minute, are you? You know, like is, is this, right? And 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 you go, "Oh, you are a Trump supporter." Oh, well the, the, you know, we could talk about this now. It, it, it the, there was this sort of like feeling out period of like, am I willing to tell you that this is what my politics are? The same way as am I willing to tell you, you know, what my sort of sexual situation is? I'm sorry if that was weird, but I, I, I think the analogy is actually somewhat apt. I want to ask you about New York, but first, uh, we, we're going to talk about New York as in what's happening to it, what has happened to it, uh, and how it's happening in other cities also all across America. But you need to add one of American Giant's incredibly comfortable hoodies to your wardrobe. I'm all about comfort. I mean, I'm sitting here right now in a T-shirt, so you know that. And uh, David's over there in some soccer hoodie smoking a cigarette. So we're two guys who like to be comfortable. David, I got to get you an American Giant hoodie, my friend. They're phenomenal. Uh, they've got the classic full zip hoodie. They've also just released their new relaxed classic full zip hoodie. The newest one is crafted for the days you get to work from home or just want to be super comfortable. So it's got a little extra give, a little extra room in it. But both of these American Giant hoodies are phenomenal. It's going to remind you your favorite old worn-in sweatshirt from college. American Giant makes everything in the USA. They obsess over every detail in construction and assembly. And uh, they've also got more than hoodies, of course. They've got uh, flannels, sweaters, joggers, tanks, sweatpants, and everyday denim. And you're going to love them. I think American Giant is going to become your favorite hoodie and comfortable shirt and comfortable gear company period go to american-giant.com get 20 percent off when you use my name buck at checkout that's american-giant.com you'll get 20 percent off when you use the name buck b-u-c-k at checkout you're gonna love this gear trust me on this i'm gonna have to send david some now i can't i can't just you know make these promises and not follow through david i don't know where i'm gonna send it though because you don't live in new york anymore what happened no, I, I, I moved to West Virginia, um, which, uh, you know, a lot of people who, who, who know me found strange. Um, look, 
it wasn't, it, you know, I, I love New York City. I really do. And I always will. Um, it was mostly about my kid who's about to be a teenager. And I, you know, I was thinking about this because I've been, you know, asked this question a lot. And when he was born 12 years ago, if you had said to me, uh, your 15 year old son and some of his buddies want to like take the subway to Manhattan, you know, go to the movies, go see a concert, whatever it is, they'll be back by 11 on the subway. I thought, okay, that's fine. I, I can't think that anymore. Um, and so, you know, just talking to my son's mom and, and, you know, both of us sort of realizing this, it's just not a good place for a teenager to be. If I didn't have a kid, I'd probably still be in New York, but I, you know, and the schools, I mean, every day, Buck, was like Pride Day or BLM Day or something, you know, I, it just became untenable. What happened? Why? How did, it, how, did it, how did it turn into this? I think, you know, it's funny. I, I, my first month in college in New York City was in 1994. No, I'm sorry, 1993. And I remember sitting at Cafe Reggio, which if anybody goes to New York, you have to go to Cafe Reggio on McDougal Street. It's the best place in the city. I, I remember I, sitting I just there. Say, I, I love that whole area of Greenwich Village, but right around oh, there in particular, there's like a romance. I just remember so many nights going out there, drinks in restaurants and chasing uh, life. There, There is something about New York City at its peak that you are living your life in a film or a novel. Yeah. It, it's a special, it, look, it is a special place. I felt that way my whole life growing up there. Yeah. And you know, so, so I'm at Reggio and we find out Giuliani won. And I was like, Whoa. Right. Again, no cell phone. So there was, I think the owner just walked in. He goes, Giuliani won. He had beaten David Dinkins. And within two or three years, Giuliani had really turned the city around in, in, in remarkable ways. And New York City is, is, of course, you know, deep blue. But let's not forget from 93 until was it 2013 when de Blasio was elected, there was no Democrat elected mayor. What a huge difference. And how impactful that was. There were there was stuff that I didn't love about Bloomberg. And unfortunately, Bloomberg became an independent and that really I, I, I think that really hurt the city when he did that in a lot of ways. But the city was growing. It was safe. It, it, the, the police department was, I, I mean, just the best in the world. And, and that was the city that I moved to. And that was the city that I loved. And de Blasio destroyed it. Um, you know, I, I, I want to believe that Eric Adams is trying to to get it back. But the man doesn't seem to have a whole lot of backbone. Yeah. What is it that you think would be the single most important focus in New York city um, to bring it back? I mean, yeah, obviously crime, but how is it enforcing the law across the board? Is it even possible to have a single focus? Is it just that the system has so deteriorated that you have to have a menu of 15 things you have to do differently. You have to prosecute everybody who breaks the law. You have to actually enforce sentences. You have to get away from no cash bail. You have to clean up the streets. I mean, literally clean up the streets. Right? I mean, it just felt like there was an all across the board collapse of what New Yorkers, irrespective of how they felt about national gun policy or abortion or foreign policy or whatever, I grew up with this belief that New Yorkers, because of the change the city had, they they realized, hey, we can actually just all agree we want safety, clean streets, functioning local services and, and bureaucracy, you know, the improving schools at best. But you know, there are some amazing public schools in New York City, for example. People always Absolutely. trash the public school system. There are world-class public schools in New York City. There are just also a lot of bad ones in New York City. But that we all could agree on those things. And so let's just focus on that as a city. We can argue about the national political stuff, you know, later, but I feel like that went away. I feel like in the I, era look, of Trump in particular and de Blasio got all this going, it just turned into, you know, if I can virtue signal from my $4 million duplex on the upper West side about how much I care about BLM, 
So what if some old ladies get bludgeoned by lunatics with hatchets in, in Midtown? That's pretty much what it felt like the city turned into. I, I, I think a great example is stop, question, and frisk, right? This is, so stop, question, and frisk was just enormously successful in lowering gun violence in New York City. And <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> An interesting thing happened, right? De Blasio ends stop, question, and frisk. And there may have been excesses. Like, like maybe the police went a little too far sometimes with this. De Blasio ends it, and a year, two years, three years into it, everybody goes, oh, look, no big difference in gun violence. See, like the thing didn't work. Then gun violence starts to spike. Why? Because what stop, question, and frisk did was it said to gang members and career criminals, you can't walk around just holding a gun on your body. Because if you do, you might get stopped, you might get frisked, and you might end up at Rikers Island for having this illegal gun. So they would leave the illegal gun either at home or in a stash box or wherever it went. Now, the difference between gang incitement or criminal incitement when someone has a gun on their person versus when they have to take 20 minutes to go get the gun, think about it and come back. That's a cultural change. And sure enough, five, six years later, these gun death rates are, are back, not to where they were in the eighties, but, but getting there, right? Because we're not disincentivizing that kind of behavior. It's, it's everything is permissive. And, you know, I don't know. People can, can I, can I tell you on one thing that I was experiencing yeah. before I moved to Florida that um, it be, it wasn't a thing that was rare. It was a thing that would happen every few weeks. People would follow me on in the streets and every New Yorker I know. And I, one of the things that really pisses me off, too, is, you know, if you ever share this stuff publicly or if I tweet about it or something, you'll always have some little beta male who looks like he hasn't gotten, you know, any sunlight or eaten any red meat in the last 15 years. Who'd be like, oh, I'm sorry that you had to deal with problems in your... It's like, this is everybody, okay? This is happening to people all the time. Everyone I know, you would have not not a panhandler sitting there with a cup saying, hey, can you help me out? You know, I, I, I get it. And you know, give them, you know, as you have, every New Yorker has. We, we give money to people, even though a lot of the times it's just going to go to drug use and we actually shouldn't. And they should get into the shelter system. And that's the reality of it. But that's a whole other conversation. But you have guys who walk after you who are able-bodied, maybe mid-late 20s who are saying, hey, man, I need some money. I need some money to take the subway. And if you just keep walking, they keep walking with you, and then they start screaming profanity at you. They'll call you names. They'll curse at you. They'll try to instigate some kind of a, an incident with you or intimidate you into giving them money. I must have had that happen five or six times in my last year in New York City. Really ugly because, you know, I, I'm quiet, I'm quiet, and then I keep walking. I had to turn around on two separate occasions and be like, you're going to back away or this is going to actually be a problem. And I'm not, you know, oh, I'm so tough guy or something. Or you could let somebody keep, you know, shouting in your face that they're going to beat the crap out of you and, you know, kill your whole family unless you give them $5. Like, this is what you were dealing with in New York City. All of those people are criminals. All of the people doing this have committed all kinds of felonies in their past. It is never a surprise when they finally get arrested for stabbing grandma with an ice pick. And yet... The libs are all, oh, we incarcerate too many people. No, we don't, actually. I I'm sorry, but we don't. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. So this is like two weeks ago or something. Like the one place I still like to walk, right? Like West Virginia is not a big walking place, but I can walk to 7-Eleven. It takes me about 12 minutes to get there, 12 minutes to get back. And so I often sort of walk over to 7-Eleven. And I'm walking to 7-Eleven and this big, you know, sort of like, you know, black pickup truck is slowing down behind me and like coming to a stop next to me. And all of my Brooklyn instincts kick in. I'm like, oh my God, like, what, what is this? Like, what, what am I going to deal with here? So like, I get the face on, like I'm ready to go. Right. And the guy lowers his window and he's sitting there with his wife <clears throat> and he says, you know, hey, I'm Jake. I'm new to the neighborhood. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 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 new here, but I'm a pastor, and we're starting a new church. If you're interested, and he hands me a flyer, and I felt so dirty, Buck. 
I, I just, I, I just, I, I felt like, I felt like, oh my God, you horrible person. You, your, your, your first instinct here was somebody wants something from you. Somebody's, you know, trying to take advantage of you. And here was a guy who was like, hey, I'm starting a church. Do you want to come? You know, and I'm a Catholic and it was Presbyterian or something, so I can't. But still. Yeah, like, you were like, come back to me when you got the real thing. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's right. No, but you, but you understand what I'm saying, right? Like, like that was just a moment where I was like, OK, I'm not in Brooklyn anymore. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm as I'm talking to you right now, uh, David, um, as, we're, as we're sitting down having this chat that I'm not kidding. The next place I am going as soon as we are done, I'm going to pick up my brand new Daniel Defense AR-15. And and I'm excited because you know what else I'm probably going to do? I'm probably going to get myself a staccato. Uh, I might actually also get a Beretta shotgun so I can go clay pigeon shooting and maybe, you know, if I want. I, I don't like hunting, but I like to clay, clay pigeon shoot. Um, but uh, I'm going to go do that. And it's so weird because I was trained by the government to use pistols, M4, fully automatic, sort of like the AR-15. I was trained by the government to do these things. I came back home, lived in New York, and they disarmed me. You're not allowed to have it. Not allowed to have any of these things. And now I live in the free state of Florida, and they're like, yeah, you're a citizen. You're an American. You have Second Amendment rights. You're allowed to go buy guns. It's actually hard to process that. I mean, I love it, but it, it, there's this, there's, I almost feel like I'm going to go into the gun store here in Florida, and there's going to be like FBI guys waiting. They're like, hey, we fool, you know, you're not allowed to buy. We fooled them again. Like, you're not allowed to buy guns. Like, you're a, you're a New Yorker. It's like, well, actually, I'm a Floridian now. I live in Florida. My driver's license is Florida. I live in Florida. Um, and well, pick, pick, pick your poison. You know, you can go, you can go buy a gun wherever you want. In New York, you could have, you know, bought weed or a joint in any bodega. Uh, right? Well, that, I, I also, I think, look, this is a whole other thing, too. You know, David, I, I need to have you back because we're, we're even going over time, but like, I enjoy just, David and I are friends in real life. I enjoy just talking about all this stuff because I think I'm somebody who will admit that I think I was fooled by the libertarian case for weed extending into even more and more permissive laws about not just marijuana, but, you know, these drug programs and everything. It is that it is unfortunately the degradation of society. Fentanyl is more dangerous than anything else we have ever seen by far. And we all have this idea of like, we just need to treat we just need to treat the drugs. I don't think we'll ever be able to stop this stuff as long as people want it. I'm not naive, but as a society, I do think we have to say you, you just can't do this stuff. You can't sell yeah. it. If you sell I, it, you have to be I'll, in you know hell to I'll severe. Tell, I'll, I'll tell you though, Buck, on, on the gun on the gun thing, um, I'm I'm really on the fence because you know I I, I feel safe in my community and stuff, but um, I don't I I've never felt responsible enough to be a gun owner like i feel like i'm the person who would lose it but see here's the thing you you started out this conversation you started out by saying you know obviously you're in west virginia plenty of guns um you started out by saying you know i don't think i a lot of people in my community though do have it yeah but that makes the whole community safer i mean you go to a state for example that has concealed carry and the bad guys have to think about mm, if I go into this oh, place yeah. and I just want to rob, I want to take the watch and wallet of every person in this in this restaurant of 40 people. Probably somebody in there in Texas and Florida and West Virginia who's armed up in New no, York it's a, City. It's a, it's a different. No, in New York I, I City, grew, it's a free, it's a free in, for all. You, you got I nobody grew up in Philly. I grew up in Philly. I spent most of my adulthood in New York. And the obvious answer there is give them your watch, give them your wallet. Right. I mean, that's it. Like, 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 that's just, that's what we're all taught to do. That's, that, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, no, I mean, the notion of like, maybe I have a gun on me and I can tell this guy not to, that, that's very, that, that's honestly very foreign to me, Buck. Yeah. Well, I've been trained. So the good news is, David, when we go out to dinner in Florida, um, I'll probably be strapped. And uh, if anything bad happens, I'll take care of you. Well, so I, I gotta leave it. it. I gotta I'll leave try it not there. to get us into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. The Florida guy taking care of the West Virginia guy. That's right. Hey man, David, yes. where should people go to follow you? Follow your work, and I really will come back. I want to talk drugs with you. I want to talk illegal immigration, cartels, all kinds of stuff. So we'll do that next month. But um, where should people go to follow your work? I'm at Blue Box Dave on Twitter and on pretty much most of the platforms. You know, you can read me at Daily Mail. Uh, Daily Wire, Fox News, Spectator, Human Events. Um, you know, I try to. I try to, uh, you know, I, I, what I like to do, Buck, is, is I, I want to write for everybody who's on the right because I think we have these factions now 
think sometimes there's infighting. I like everybody. I, I think everybody's fighting the good fight. And so I like to be out there. I, I actually agree with you. I, that's why I don't take shots at right wing people on the yeah. very large radio show that I do every day. I don't do it. I mean, yeah. politicians, yes, but people in the media, yeah, yeah. we're all on the same team. David, great to see you, my man. Talk next time, okay? Thanks for having me, man. Okay. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.